Good morning. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mike. I'll be filling in for uh, Daryl, obviously. I don't have the advantage Tim had. He told us last week he's been teaching for like a really long time. I forget what he <laughs> said. So he has, a, he has a career of speaking before people. I have a career of being by myself all day, so I don't get to talk to anybody. I work alone. So this is uh, always quite an intimidating experience for me to speak in front of people. Um, I've got a list here of funny things that teachers have had to say in their classroom. These are actual quotes teachers said in the classroom. Tim was a teacher, so he probably uh, relates to some of this. I think most of these were probably teachers of younger kids, but... Here's a few of them. One teacher had to say, do not disturb reading group unless you're bleeding, vomiting, or on fire. <laughs> teacher Jen said, please don't bring me presents from the toilet. <laughs> One teacher said, stop eating your shoe. Another teacher said, you did a great job putting on your belt. Now go back in the bathroom and put on your pants. This teacher said, quit stuffing mulch down your pants. I don't care that you're having fun. You're not allowed to poke people with your pencil. We don't pee on our friends, honey. Just because your finger fits in your nose doesn't mean you should put it there. And the last teacher, Wendy here, once had to say, why did you glue your sandwich to your desk? There's a list of about a hundred of them, actually. So the things teachers have to say to their students are sometimes unbelievable, I guess. Um, but today we're going to look at, I've titled this sermon, The Good Teacher. Um, we're going to look at a story from Mark chapter 10. So uh, if you will turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at, I guess, a famous story. It's known as the story of the rich young ruler. This story is also found in Matthew 19 and Luke 18. In Mark 10, we're going to begin in verse 17 follow along as I read. I'll be reading out of the ESV, um, but follow along. We'll read the passage and we'll go back through it. Mark 10, 17 says, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and asked him, you lack, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possession. 
And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but again he said to them, children, how difficult it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were astonished, and they said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, this story we have here. We ask that... uh, I ask that you give me your words to speak. Um, Give us ears to hear and a heart to hear what uh, the Spirit would be saying to us this morning. And it's in Christ's name I pray. So let's go back up to the top of the story here in verse 17. He's setting out on a journey and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a pretty awesome question, right? I guess as believers or as evangelists, you think to yourself, this would kind of be the greatest setup ever. Somebody comes up to you and asks, you know, what do I do? What do I do to get eternal life? What do I do to get saved? That is the greatest question. That's the question all of us should be asking. We should have asked at some point in our life. And it's the question all humanity should be asking. Most people recognize there is an eternal life, that there's an afterlife. Something's coming. Almost everybody intuitively knows it. It's built into our human uh, conscience, in our mind, in our soul, and even in our experience. We just know there's something there. For people to live through life and never ask this question is... uh, seems stupid. What could be more important than this question? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? If you believe there's an eternal life, if you believe there's something after this life, how are you not asking this question? What do I got to do to get it? It seems so basic. But this guy is asking the right question. We see that he runs up to Jesus. We see that he kneels. So uh, he he seems to be doing everything right. He seems to be coming the right way. Now in Mark here, it just says a man uh, came up to him. In Matthew, I think, is where we learn that he's a ruler of some kind. And in Luke is where, well, even here, we'll learn that he's wealthy, that he's rich. So that's where we compile all three accounts and we get the story of the rich young ruler, even though you don't necessarily see it right here. So this guy's young. He's rich and he's a ruler of some kind probably that phrase that he's a ruler means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin um, like a Pharisee of the Pharisees he's one that got to make judgments and rule over Israel and he comes and he kneels down he's got a proper humble attitude I guess and he asks the greatest question there is but he makes a mistake somehow And Jesus kind of puts his finger on it. He says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus puts his finger on that and he says, why do you call me good? 
no one is good except God. Jesus does this a lot if you read the Gospels, the New Testament. Jesus answers a question with a question almost every time. (laughs) It almost seems frustrating at times. Like, why don't you give a straight answer? But Jesus does this a lot. That's why I titled the sermon The Good Teacher, because this is what a good teacher does. He makes his students think. He asks some questions back. One time a student went to her principal and said, I think I need a new teacher. And the principal said, yeah, why is that? Because our teacher doesn't seem to know anything. She's always asking us for the answers. But that's what a good teacher does, right? Ask questions, makes the student think. Why do you call me good? There's a few things I want to look at at this little um, question he gives. Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Some people on the surface, um, I've actually heard this passage used as proof that Jesus didn't think he was God. They'll say, see, look here. Jesus answers and says, no one's good except God. Why do you call me good? And they misunderstand. I I think it's pretty obvious that... uh, He's being ironic here, right? It's not proof that he's saying he's not God. It's actually a hint that he is God. And Jesus did this a lot, you know, when you read the Gospels. Remember earlier in Mark chapter 2, there's the, the guy that's paralyzed, and his friends are trying to get him to Jesus. But Jesus is in that house, and it's crowded. They can't get to him, so they go out on the roof, and they tear the roof off, and they're going to lower the man down, if you remember that story. Uh, they lower the guy down right in the midst of Jesus, and everybody, you know, has to stop what's going on and watch this spectacle. And Jesus looks at the guy, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees that are there, they get all mad and say, who can forgive sin except God alone? And it's almost like Jesus says, bingo, <laughs> you know, you got it. He's hinting that. He is God alone. He, he, they're right. Only, Jesus, only God can forgive sin, and here Jesus is forgiving sin. But remember what he says back. He doesn't say, you got it. Yeah, I'm God. He says, which is easier to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And you think about that question. It's like, well, yeah, of course it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because who would know for sure? But Jesus says, so that you may know that I have power to forgive sin, i.e. that I'm God. Tells the guy, get up and walk. Pick up your bed and walk. And the guy does. Proving the statement they just said, which only God can forgive sin. You know, Jesus comes through. There's a lot of veiled statements like that all through the New New Testament that are Jesus proclaiming to be God, but we kind of miss it. It's a little... uh, Veiled, I guess I would say. John eight fifty six, um, you know, he says, Abraham longed to see my day and and saw it and was glad. And they say you're not even fifty years old, and you you say you you saw Abraham. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. The I am is really important if you read your Bible, if you know your Bible. I am is the name of God that God gave Moses in the burning bush. Moses says, what's, what's your name? What should I tell the people? Who is this God? He says, I am. That's my name. That's who you tell him sent you. 
And here Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. It's a kind of an awkward construction in the Greek, and it doesn't really make sense uh, linguistically. You know, it's improper grammar to say it that way. But what Jesus was saying is, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God that was in that burning bush. This is the name that I gave Moses. Sometimes we don't see it in the English, but the Jews understood it because they pick up stones to stone him saying, you make yourself out to be God. They want to kill him for it. It's blasphemy. I don't know exactly why Jesus spoke this way. Um, A lot of critics of Christianity will say, you know, there's not one place in the Bible where Jesus just flat out says, I am God. I don't know why he didn't do it. Maybe Proverbs 25.2 gives us insight. Proverbs 25.2 says, It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it's the glory of kings to search it out. Maybe that's a little hint. God wants us studying the Bible. He wants us searching things out. He wants us figuring stuff out. I know when I prepare for a sermon, it's probably the most blessed week I have all year because I'm searching things out. I'm studying things. But I don't think that's the only thing Jesus is saying here. I don't think he's just trying to be ironic and, and wink at the disciples saying, see, I'm God. I think there's more going on here. Why do you call me good? I think he's pinpointing something that this guy has, a problem this guy has, and it's a problem we all have, which is a misunderstanding of the word good. This guy that runs up to Jesus doesn't know Jesus. I mean, he knows about him, I suppose. He knows he's a teacher. He knows he has a following. And he runs up to him and calls him good. Why is he calling him good? Jesus responds with, no one is good except God alone. The world's understanding of good and the biblical understanding of good are are opposites. Man, we have this problem in America. We have this problem within the church. We're good people. Right? We do good things. We help poor people. We, you know, we haven't spent a life on drugs or crime. We're good. Jesus says nobody's good except God. There's not varying degrees of goodness in the world. And you're pretty good, and you're pretty good, and compared to this guy, you're really good. In the world, there's varying degrees of bad. You're not as bad as some other people are. I'm not as wicked as somebody you might be able to name, but I'm wicked. I'm bad. We all are. Nobody's good except God. And I think that's what Jesus was getting at. That's what Jesus is trying to pinpoint. Because we're going to go to this, uh, he's going to go to this, you know, immediately. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Verse 19. So immediately, he seems to be answering his question now. 
just keep the commandments. You know, as Christians, if you're a believer here this morning, if you've heard the gospel, you, you get saved by, uh, you know, placing your faith in Jesus. So you hear this and you're, you should be thinking, what? Why is Jesus saying keep the commandments? What's that about? A few things stick out at me. First, why does he uh, leave off a bunch of the Ten Commandments? He only quotes, he lists six things here. But only five of them are from the Ten Commandments. He adds another one, do not defraud. That's not uh, part of the Ten Commandments. In Matthew, I think it is, it's, it says uh, not to harm your neighbor, something like that. Um, so I don't know why he added one and he doesn't quote them all. What I think, though, is he's pinpointing the ones that this guy could check off his list really easily. He's listing some of the commandments that this guy feels like he's kept really well. And he's, he's not even mentioning the ones that uh, maybe you couldn't prove. Some, you know, some of the others are a matter of the heart. To have no other gods before me, love the Lord your God, these things, it, you know, it might be not as external. These are pretty external ones. Don't murder. How many of you have murdered? You know, you could say, all right. I kept that one. I did it. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. You know, this guy is a good guy. He doesn't do these things. So he responds, you know, verse uh, 20. Teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. You ever see those evangelists on the street? Um, can't think of that guy's name, but he's one of these guys. He's pretty famous. He goes around and he asks people. He usually starts out with, are you a good person? People say, yeah, yeah, I'm a good person. He says, well, have you ever lied? Have you ever told, uh, said a, you know, told a lie? Well, yeah. And he says, well, what does that make you? A liar, I guess. <laughs> Well, have you ever stolen anything? No. What about, you know, the answer's on a test. What about, you know, and he kind of prods him a little bit into what it, what it really is stealing. Yeah, okay, I've stolen things. So what does that make you? I guess a thief, you know. So you're a lying thief. When you go through these, you can tell none of us are good. We broke these commandments on our way to church this morning. He says, I've kept all these from my youth. Really? Good grief. Remember Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount? Just in case you thought maybe you actually have kept some of these commandments. What does Jesus say? You've heard it said. It's been told to you. You've learned that you're not supposed to commit adultery. I was one he listed, right? But that's an external thing. He says, I say to you, if you've ever looked at a woman with lust, then you've already committed adultery. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. How many people are checking that one off? Yeah, I didn't do that. I'm good. But I say to you, anyone who has anger in his heart, it's the same as murder. The Jews, the Pharisees, this guy in particular, 
they were good about keeping the externals and they were bad about you know the heart they kept the su- superficial surface level of the law don't steal did it don't commit adultery did it don't you know whatever but they missed the heart of the law they missed the heart of the commandments We have this problem in America, I think. This I'm a good person mentality. And I don't think this guy was a, you know, a pompous, proud jerk. He comes up and he kneels, right? I think he sincerely believed this stuff. He sincerely believed he was good. He didn't see the need for repentance. And that's what Jesus is going to. So Jesus tells him, you know the commandments, do not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, defraud, honor, and honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Sell all you have and follow me. Here's a guy that comes to Jesus, says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Right? This is the evangelist dream. There it is. Boom. Laid out. He's kneeling. He's humble. He's contrite. He knows something's missing. He asks, what do I have to do? Jesus talks about commandments, and then he tells him, go sell everything. What? Why didn't Jesus say, Believe in me. Why didn't Jesus say, recite this prayer? Pull out his little uh, tract and flip it over to the sinner's prayer on the back. If you're reading this story like I do, and you see this guy's heart, I think without question the guy would have repeated that prayer. How many agree? He would have done it. If Jesus had said, believe in me, he would have done it, I think. So what's the problem? How does Jesus mess this up? He's got the perfect opportunity here, right? And he, he, uh, he screws up the gospel, I guess. Is that how we would look at this? Is that how we would answer this guy? Or would we go straight to the sinner's prayer? Would we miss the heart of a true believer who's repentant and just say, just add Jesus. You want a good life? You want your best life now? Just add Jesus to whatever you're doing. That's the mistake a lot of us make because the world will gladly add Jesus if they don't have to give anything else up. That's not a big deal. Just add Jesus. Just say this prayer. Repeat after me. Are you too nervous to repeat the words? Then I'll pray, and if you agree, squeeze my hand. Is that what we do with people? You know, I got saved 
uh, at a young age, repeating a sinner's prayer. Paul Washer says, if you were saved that way, you were, in, you were saved in spite of that way, not because of that way. You don't get saved by repeating a prayer. You don't get saved by your sincerity. You get saved when the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, changes your heart. It's a work of God. He does this thing. You don't just say a prayer and add it to your life. Because after all, this guy was good, right? He had it all. He's kept all the commandments. He's just got to tack on one more thing. Years ago, a good friend of mine was a missionary in uh, Papua New Guinea uh, with New Tribes Missions. And he actually worked with me for a time. And, uh, you know, he told me one of the biggest challenges, we went to New Guinea, actually, and helped him build his house in the jungle. It was really cool. And he told me one of the biggest challenges for the uh, New Tribes missions is when they get to a village and, you know, they teach them the gospel, they introduce them to God to explain to them that they're not good, that they're not, uh, they're not good enough for heaven, that Jesus isn't just something they add to their, their other beliefs, you know, all their pagan beliefs, all their, uh, a lot of times other churches have tried to, other cults have tried to evangelize these communities and these villages, and they just have all these jumbled beliefs. And the New Tribes missionaries show up, and they tell them about Jesus, and they just add him, yeah. They got their totem poles and their idols and their things and just put a cross on the wall also. What can it hurt? You know, and that's the challenge they face in the jungles, that the people won't see the need for this uh, singular focus on Christ. They just add him to what they're already doing. And I think this is why Jesus says, sell all you have and follow me. He's pinpointing something that's at the heart of this guy's trust. You know, later in verse 24, he says how hard it is for someone who trusts in riches to enter heaven. So it's not just that this guy's rich, right? It's that he's trusting in riches. That was one of his problems. And he, he tells him, go and sell all you have and come follow me. That's the end of that verse. A lot of people get hung up on the riches part. The rich young ruler was apparently hung up on the riches part. And it was a barrier to him following Christ. That's why Jesus pinpoints it. That's why Jesus calls it out. I can assure you Jesus knows the gospel. He doesn't mess it up. He's not confused here. He knows what he's doing. In John 6, verse 28, you know, they say, what must we, be, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Kind of the same question. What do we got to do? Jesus says, believe Believe in the one he sent. In John 3, just so we are clear on the gospel. In fact, let's actually turn there. John chapter 3. Obviously, this is the chapter where we get the famous John 3, 16 verse. 
but sometimes in memorizing John 3.16, we lose the story. It's one of my favorite stories because just like the rich young ruler, this guy comes to Jesus and kind of has questions, right? He wants to know how to get saved. In John 3.3, he says, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, eternal life, being saved, these are interchangeable concepts. It's what everybody's after. Nicodemus doesn't understand. He, he doesn't get it. How can I be born again? I can't go, I can't enter a second time into the womb. And you know, Jesus is saying, good grief, you're a leader in Israel and you don't understand. Skip to about verse 14. He says, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, if you know your Bible, you know this story well. This is one of my favorite uh, stories. And a hint, a tip for all you who want to share your faith someday, want to witness to somebody and don't know how, here's a really simple, easy place to do it. Read John 3, 14 and 15. And then tell them about that story. From Numbers 21. If you're not familiar with it, go read it. Numbers 21. Um, how many of you do remember that story? The Israelites, they're in the wilderness, right? Moses leads them out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. There's little food. They don't know where they're going. Water's tough to find. They start grumbling, complaining. They say, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Just to die in the desert. And they're grumbling and complaining. So God says, sends these snakes into the camp. The Old Testament calls them fiery serpents, poisonous snakes. And people are getting bitten by these snakes, and people are dying. And it was like a punishment against complaining against God. So the people complain and tell Moses, look, we're going to die from these snakes. He says, what do we do? Moses goes to God. God says, here's what you do. Make a snake, a bronze serpent. Put it on a pole. Lift it high up in the middle of the camp, and if somebody's snake bitten, all they need to do is turn and look at the snake on the pole, and they'll be healed. They'll be saved. It's so simple. But it's a picture. I mean, I believe the story really happened, but it's obviously a, a picture. It's a word picture. It's an object lesson that God is implementing to teach us about the gospel. You got to stop doing whatever it is you think's going to work, putting mud on the bite or trying to suck the poison out or whatever they were trying to do. Just turn and look. And Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. He's going to be lifted up on a cross. That anybody who just turns and looks, it's an act of faith, but it's also an act of repentance because you're turning to look. Whatever you're looking at now isn't Jesus. Whatever you're looking at now isn't the snake on the pole. You have to turn from that to look at the snake on the pole. Nobody's born looking at the snake on the pole. You're not born into Christianity because you're born to Christian parents. You're born looking at yourself, thinking I'm a good person. 
You got to turn from looking at that. That's what the word repent means. We mess it up a lot because in English, in America today, we think the word repent means to be really, really sorry, right? To do penance, to beg and plead. And uh, some people have even elevated repentance to the level of uh, work, right? They say, oh, if if you preach that you have to repent, you're preaching a work salvation, that repentance is a work. Well, repentance is the act of believing. It's the act of true belief. Because in the Greek, the word is metanaeo. And uh, it just means to change your mind. To change your heart. To turn. To have a change of opinion. To turn around. You're, you're looking this way, and all you got to do is turn and look at the snake on the pole. You can't just add Jesus to whatever it is you're doing. You, you just turn. The rich young ruler can't continue trusting in his riches and add Jesus. He would have messed it up. He would have been a false convert. He would have walked away from that scenario having prayed the sinner's prayer, but having never repented, having never turned to Jesus. So Jesus calls him out. Of course, Jesus knows his heart. Um, He kind of cheats, right? But he knows this guy isn't going to truly repent and turn to follow me without a test, you know. So he gives him this test to kind of point it out. Here's where your heart really is. Go and sell everything and follow me. This isn't necessarily how we would have witnessed to the guy. But it should cause us to stop and think how we witness to people. It should cause us to stop and think how we were converted. How did we believe? Was it super easy? Did we just add Jesus? Did we just say a prayer? Or did we truly have a moment where we turned from whatever it was we were trusting in did we repent you have to turn from something if you're going to turn to God because you're not already pointed at God that's not the default position Romans 3.10, it says, no one is righteous, not one. No one does good. In 3.20, it says, for by works of the law, no human will be justified, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Jesus is not telling this guy, if you sell everything, you get eternal life. That's not the formula. That's not the equation. 
That's not the message for us this morning. Give up everything you have and you get to go to heaven. Jesus is pinpointing that this guy's idol is money. This guy thinks he's good. He literally just told Jesus he's kept all the commandments from his youth. I don't know what he means by from his youth, but there's not a lot of youth keeping any commandments. Yeah, I don't know. There has to be repentance. You have to be turning from something. Psalm 711 and 12. It says, God is a righteous God. If a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword and his bow is bent. Think about that picture for a minute. God sharpening a sword and drawing a bow. If you don't repent, God's sharpening his sword. Some translations, I think uh, the King James Version says, if a man doesn't turn around, God's sharpening his sword. They get the, you know, the, the meaning of the word repent. You got to turn around. You're not default going towards God. You've got to turn around. Go back to John chapter 3. You know, he tells him just as uh, Moses has lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, whoever believes, will have eternal life. Our famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his Son to condemn the world, but nor the world might be saved. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Some translations say stands condemned already. Our default position is not cool with God. Our default position is you stand condemned already. You've got to leave that. You've got to turn from that. Look at the snake on the pole. You're already snake bitten. Your job isn't to run through the camp avoiding snakes. You're already snake bitten. We all are. We're born snake bitten. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. It's not something that's going to happen to you if you're bad. It's something that we all deserve. We're all bad. We're varying degrees of bad. We're varying degrees of snake bitten. Some got it in the neck, I guess, and some only got it on the arm. But it's poisonous. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. That's our default position. debated uh, giving this illustration. Dave, don't get mad at me. Got my water here. So, I'm going to pour this water out. 
You know, imagine we're outside on the ground. It's the desert, I suppose. And I want you to look at 2 Samuel 14, 14. You don't have to turn there. You can if you like. It says, like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered. So we must all die. Who wants to come try to pick up that water and get it back in this bottle? Just like water spilled on the ground, which can't be recovered. We must all die. That's the scariest verse there is. But it doesn't end there. It goes on. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be covered, so we must all die. But the Lord devises ways so the banished one will not remain estranged. God's figured out a way. He thought about this. He devised a way. Because this is a scary truth. People aren't just basically good. They're going to die. So he had to devise a way. And he did in Jesus. He's saying you just turn. You turn from whatever you're trusting in. Are you trusting in the fact that you're good enough? Are you trusting in the fact that you're better than the people you know? Are you trusting in the fact that you prayed a prayer at a good news club when you were seven? I don't know. And you really, really meant it? Prayers don't save us. Being good doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. And we need to turn and come to Jesus. This repentance. You must repent. That's what Jesus is saying. Follow me. Turn from that. Follow me. And verse 22 back in our passage in Mark. says, uh, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He wasn't willing to do it. He was sad, and he left. Man, Jesus messed this one up, didn't he? The guy got away. Darn it. How many of us would have never let that guy get away? Until we got him to sign up for the new believers pack. Got him to say the sinner's prayer. Got him to repeat after me. He was ready, right? He was ripe. He wanted to know. He walked forward. He came down the aisle. Knelt at the altar. Said, tell me what to do. How dangerous it is in that moment to squeeze in. Just say a prayer. And you get to go to heaven. It misses something that Jesus pointed out. Let's not miss that. Not to knock anybody, you know. Like I said, I got saved that way. That was my understanding of the gospel for a long time. Um, 
but it can be confusing if you, if you think, because I prayed, that's why I'm saved. You're saved because you're trusting in Christ. And when you trust in Christ, there's nothing that would come between you and that. You'd be willing to give up everything and sell your possessions if that's what Jesus demanded of you. And think about that right here now. You know, if, if Jesus was here and that's what he's asking of you, would you do it? Or would you say, well, I don't really have to do that, you know, because the... All you have to do is say that prayer. And I did, so I don't have to give up anything. Right? We wrestle with that. I wrestle with that. I don't really have to be all in for Jesus. Because that's not a requirement. All I got to really do is believe. And I believe, so... I don't think Jesus messed it up. I think Jesus knew this man's heart. He knew he had a barrier. He knew he thought he was a good person. He knew he's trusting in his riches. And Jesus says, you have to repent. You have to give that up. Come follow me. And the guy won't do it. You know, and the, the disciples, they're amazed. They've never seen anything like this, right? They thought, surely Jesus is going to reel this guy in. He's teaching us to be fishers of men. This fish is about jumping in the boat. And Jesus all but swats it away. Because we can't just add that external. That's not what it's about. Jesus says, you know, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. The evidence of your salvation isn't remembering a time when you prayed a prayer and then nothing ever happened. Your life never changed. There's no repentance. There's no fruit. There's no desire for God. You're not following Jesus. Remember, that's what he said. Sell everything and follow me. Hmm. Adding this belief You know, and I read all these verses, so please don't hear that I'm saying there's a, you know, a works-based salvation here. It's by grace through faith. We looked at that. Just turn and look at the snake. It's the turning I'm concerned about. It's these people that give an answer, something like, yeah, I just grew up in a house that we were always looking at the snake on the pole. That, that's not how it works. You're not a Christian because you grew up in a Christian home. You're not a Christian because you grew up in America. I don't know what the stats are, but I think it's like the high 80s. 80% of Americans say they're Christians. They're just included, you know. We're good people. Go to church a few times a year, at least Easter, Christmas. I don't do any bad stuff. And I believe in Jesus. I mean, basically everybody believes in Jesus. 
Mormons believe in Jesus. Jehovah's Witness believe in Jesus. I think even Muslims believe in Jesus. You know what James 2.19 says? Even the demons believe in Jesus. And they tremble. Believing in Jesus isn't salvation. Mental assent to some facts that, yeah, I believe he was a guy. I believe he was a good guy. I believe he died on the cross. The demons saw all that happen. They saw Jesus get crucified. They saw him raised from the dead. You think they don't believe it? Of course they believe it. They believe the gospel. If the gospel is that Jesus Christ is God himself, that he died, was buried, rose again, they believe those points. How could they not? They saw it happen. So what's James telling us? That there's something more than just a mental assent to the facts. The word believe has to mean more than that. Reminds me of this story. I don't know if it's true. Not sure. But there was a guy stretched a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And he uh, takes a wheelbarrow across full of bricks. And he's balancing across this tightrope. And people are just amazed, cheering and clapping. And he gets the crowd all hyped up. He says, do you believe I can do this? Oh, yeah, we believe. So he dumps out the bricks and says, then jump in the wheelbarrow. That's the difference. You've got to stop whatever you're doing place your trust you got to get in the wheelbarrow you can't be in the wheelbarrow and on the bank right you can't say i believe but be unwilling to place yourself in the situation where you're believing even the demons believe They, they refuse to get in the wheelbarrow. They don't want Jesus taking them across. They're opposed to that. Right? Good people all over America, they don't want God. They don't want Jesus. Do they want eternal life? Sure. But they don't want to give up their stuff. They wouldn't mind both. Can I add Jesus without giving anything up? Then okay. Man, we have to be careful of that. You have to be willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. Don't be confused by saying, by the, to think I'm saying you have to give up everything to follow Jesus. But a true follower of Jesus... Is willing. It's a different type of belief. The type of belief that would give up everything. And this guy didn't have it, and he wouldn't have had it. Not right now, anyway. Not in this account. I wonder what happened to the guy. He went away sad. You know, and Jesus says, man, it's hard. It's hard for somebody who's trusting in riches 
Wealthy people probably have it harder than most. You know, we're pretty wealthy in America. It's hard in America to get people to see their need. It's hard in Europe where people are pretty well off. Sharing the gospel sometimes is easier in these third world countries where people have nothing. Because when people have it pretty well together, it's hard to show them that they're bankrupt spiritually. The Bible doesn't really tell us what happened to this guy. He left sad. That's all we know. But I can't help but notice a few similarities between this guy and the Apostle Paul. When you see the Apostle Paul's background, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He says he kept the law from his youth, blameless. He was a young guy. He was an influential guy. We don't know that he had great possessions, but probably if he was in this category, he was a ruler. Paul says he cast his vote against Christians when they were being stoned. You know who was voting to stone people? That's the Sanhedrin. So Paul's casting votes. He's a ruler. He's, he's one of this group somehow. Makes me wonder if this guy wasn't Paul. He's about the right age. Paul would have been young at this time. He has all the same credentials as Paul. The Bible doesn't tell us. It's neat to think about, though. Man, I want this guy in heaven. He wanted to be there. He just wasn't ready to give up all that he had. You know what Paul tells us in Philippians 3? That once he had all this stuff, according to the law, he was blameless. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had everything externally right. He says, I gave it all up. I counted it all as rubbish for Christ. So whether the rich young ruler is Paul or not, they have very similar backstories. At one time, Paul was trusting in all that stuff, just like this guy. Paul had an experience, though, you know, that changed him. On the road to Damascus, of course, we know the story, but he says at some point, he quit trusting in that stuff. All the externals, all the being good, all the doing, all the excelling to the top of his religion, he gave it all up to follow Jesus. And for him, it was giving up a lot. I mean, that guy, what a life he had. But you know what he gained? He gained eternal life from it. Man, I hope this guy is Paul. Or that he had another chance to think about it. Right now, we have a chance to think about it. gain eternal life, what would we turn from? When we share the gospel with people, I hope we don't leave this part out. I think the worst thing we could be doing to somebody is uh, confirming to them that they're, you know, they're saved, they did it because they prayed a prayer and leave them alone and not ever worry about, did they turn from something to Jesus? 
Are they truly following Jesus? And for ourselves, I think we, can, we should check ourselves. Are we following Jesus? I pray that we are. Bow with me in prayer. Father God, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the power of the gospel to change lives, to save souls, the simplicity, the ease. But I pray, God, that we never forget you didn't let this guy go without the repentance. There has to be a turning from something to something. We have to change our minds. We have to change our hearts. Or rather, you change our hearts from something to you, to be followers of you. I pray that all those who heard my voice this morning saw in your word the answer, how to have eternal life, how to be saved. We just thank you for the work you did on the cross to make that possible. And I just pray that we open our ears and our hearts to that reality. And it is in Christ's name I pray.